Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. Today's program, we're going to be talking about the Longshoremen Workers Action on the West Coast docks. We're going to be talking about unemployment compensation. We're talking about a strike of workers in homes for people with development problems. And finally, a conflict between the United States and Mexico that teaches us much about the world. But before I jump in, I want to let you know that the very topics I've been mentioning to you just now and that I plan to go into are topics where I had help doing the research to prepare this material for you. And I want, first of all, to recognize and thank Charlie Fabian for having done that research and helped in that important way. But Charlie has gone a step further, and I want to share that with you. If anyone listening or watching to this program would like also to suggest a topic for us to consider in preparing these segments, who perhaps has some information or a news clipping that they could share with us, Charlie has agreed to manage that process. I'm going to give you his email address. If you have such a suggestion, if you would like to partner with us in that way, please contact Charlie at the following. Charlie, usual spelling, C-H-A-R-L-I-E, dot info, 438 at gmail.com. Once again, charlie.info438 at gmail.com. And I thank you in advance. I just want to begin by recognizing the important actions being taken by the ILWU, the Union of Dock Workers in California, Oregon, Washington, and I believe up into Canada as well. The West Coast is an important shipping area. They've been negotiating, this union has, with the shipping companies for a year or more, and the companies haven't come across with a compromise that the union can and will accept. And so that union is showing what the strike action, what the slowdown action, what that means in the perpetual struggle between employers and employees. And I want to commend the ILWU, not so much for having waited a year of long-lasting negotiations with the employers digging in and not making the kinds of adjustments and compromises that they ought to, but also for having the organization, the commitment, and the sheer strength that a union has to use what is probably its most important weapon, and that is the withdrawal of its labor, or the slowing down of its labor, a lesson many other unions would do well to learn. I want to turn next to the issue of unemployment compensation. And here, the crucial thing is to understand that here is, as in that strike on the West Coast, another case of the struggle of classes in this country, the class of employers and the class of employees. People like to think that the class struggle is somehow behind us. It isn't. They like to think that the class struggle isn't always there. It is. And it's easy, therefore, to come up with examples from the docks on the West Coast 
to the unemployment compensation struggle, which goes on in every one of the 50 states of this country. Here's basically how it works. When an employer and employees cannot bargain and negotiate a resolution to their conflicting interests, well, then what happens? The union can, and in extreme circumstances, will call a strike. And now let's be clear what a strike means. The workers withdraw their labor. That's all it means. We're not going to come to work and do the work we usually do because the conditions are unbearable, the wages are unacceptable, whatever. And when the workers do that, here's what happens to them. They immediately stop being paid. Now, most workers in America live pretty close to paycheck to paycheck, which means if they don't go to work, they don't get the paycheck. And that throws them into extreme, immediate economic trouble. And of course, it means their families who depend on that paycheck are in trouble. Other people beside the worker who strikes are affected by the worker who strikes. Now let me compare that to the employer. Does the employer stop working when there's a strike? No. The executives, the shareholders, they're not affected by a strike in any comparable way. They're not losing a regular check that comes to them. They are not the people who live paycheck to paycheck. The richest 10% of Americans own 80% of the shares. The executives who are the top of these companies that get a strike, they get paid by the annual salary given to them. They're not losing anything. The suffering is not comparable. The worker who suffers the loss of the income they depend on versus the top executives and shareholders who are among the richest people in our society. They're the ones who have savings they can rely on. They're the ones who have associations they can count on. So it's an unfair fight, and it always has been. This has led workers to try to soften the difficulty by applying for unemployment insurance because they are, in fact, unemployed. This is a state-by-state decision. Most states in the United States do not give striking workers unemployment compensation. Among the states that do, most of them have a waiting period from one to, to a dozen or more weeks, during which, of course, the workers are on their own. Even if they get unemployment compensation, it averages out to less than half of what they normally get, and it is capped. In other words, all that unemployment compensation might do is lessen the blow of a strike on the children and spouses of the strikers. Employers have fought against it. There's the class struggle. They don't want unemployment compensation to be given to striking workers. Their argument, it doesn't have a level playing field. I got news for them, which all of you understand. It wasn't a level playing field to begin with. Workers living paycheck to paycheck 
are impacted in a fundamentally harsher way by a strike than the employer ever was. That's the reality. But despite the fact that the playing field is tilted against labor and for capital, it makes no difference. The employer class pushes everywhere not to give unemployed workers unemployment compensation. It's something to think about and to remind ourselves that the class struggle is all around us. Here's yet another example. A few weeks ago, caregivers, people who work in nonprofit organizations helping people with developmental, personal developmental problems in the state of Connecticut, 1,700 of these workers effectively went on strike. And they went on strike with their nonprofit managers. Why? Because these nonprofit homes for the developmentally challenged depend on state money to function. And they don't get enough from the state, and so they can't pay their workers. What did the state offer in the way of an increase to these nonprofit homes? Get ready, because here's the class struggle, friends. Two and a half percent. That's what was offered. This is in an economy where the prices are going up 5% a year right now. And they may continue. They may get worse. Two and a half percent to workers whose prices are going up for food, clothing, shelter at 5% a year is a guaranteed decline in your standard of living. That's what the government is. And Connecticut has a budgetary surplus among the highest in its history this year. And they still want to squeeze these low-paid workers by offering them 2.5%. That's the state collaborating with the business class to screw the working class. It's a class struggle in its ugliest form. And notice how inflation is being used to get you to have an austerity program that you don't call that. It's austerity to impose on workers a cut because 2.5% more money in your wage doesn't handle 5% higher prices to pay. So you're imposing a loss, an austerity on the workers. That's what the Democratic administration of Connecticut is doing. My last, excuse me, update that I'll have time for in this first half of the program has to do with a fight between Mexico and the United States. This has to do with the export from the United States of white corn into Mexico. It's what the Mexicans use to eat, tortillas, maize, what's for human consumption. And the Mexicans don't want and have banned United States white corn because it is genetically modified. It's GMO corn, and they don't have it. 97% of the corn produced in the United States is acceptable in Mexico. It is used to feed animals, but not the 3% for people because it's unsafe. The United States tried to export its GMO corn to Europe earlier. The United States, together with Canada, the Europeans refused. It's not safe, they said. The Mexicans are pushing the same argument. And the United States is threatening them. The United States is bullying the Mexicans for that 3%. They don't want Mexico 
to make its own decisions about what is and isn't safe for their people to eat. And I won't even go into why it is safe for Americans, apparently. Maybe has to do with the fact that the corn producers can control the American government and they can't control the Mexicans the way the United States companies once could. And that's the message here. It used to be that the struggle, the bullying, because that's what it is, of the United States to make the rest of the world do what's profitable for American companies, it all happened quietly. No one ever heard about it. It just was under the radar. But the world is changing, something we talk about on this program a great deal. The United States does not have the power it once did. Its economy isn't the power it once was. The empire the United States informally ran isn't powerful the way it once was. And nothing shows it better than these little struggles. This 3% of the corn crop, the white corn that's eaten by the Mexicans, becomes the moment when the Mexicans prevail and say, no, 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 you're not going to browbeat us. You're not going to threaten us. You're not going to ship us that corn because we don't think it's safe for our people to eat. In these little moments that are happening between the United States and many other countries all the time, the reality of the changed position of the United States is being demonstrated. No one else misses it. The newspapers in Mexico carry this story and their people understand. Not here in the United States where the stories are few, far between, and buried in the back of the newspaper or at the end of the TV program. But the changes are profound, and that's why we bring it to you. We've come to the end of the first half of today's program. Please stay with us. In the second half, we're going to be talking about socialism and why so many in America are now concerned about it as well they should be. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I've noticed that recently, and I think this has to do with the fact that capitalism around the world is in all kinds of difficulty and trouble. You know, we've had a crash, actually three so far in this new century. We've had the pandemic. We've had a global inflation. We've had rising interest rates. We are a capitalism that is experiencing really serious crises over and over, one after the other. So perhaps it's not surprising that many, many people have begun to be questioning capitalism, criticizing capitalism, wondering, which is the only intelligent thing to do, whether or not there might be a better system and we maybe ought to think about it more now that the old capitalism is tottering than ever before. Here's some evidence. I noticed that former President Trump is now collapsing his attacks on almost everybody, but even the Democratic Party, by referring to it as leftist or socialist. Wow. It's clear Mr. Trump has not spent much time studying socialism. I'm being as polite as I know how, but he knows how to use it as a kind of swear word. 
if it were only him, who cares? But then I noticed that out at Stanford University, the Hoover Institution, is producing and distributing videos and arguments against socialism. Wow. They used to do that in the days of the Cold War. Then they kind of left off on it, and they're back again. Socialism is worrying them. And here's another example. The Democratic mayor of the city of New York, having trouble getting his conservative agenda passed by a city council that won't have it, is attacking, you guessed it, socialism. Turns out that some members of the city council have shown some sympathy for socialism, so that gives the mayor a hook he thinks is useful with which to attack. Socialism is in the air. But here's the problem. The people using the term are so far behind what it means that the level of, well, politeness has to be put aside. The level of ignorance here is stupefying. And I want to deal with that by saying something about what socialism means, because it means a number of things. And I particularly want to target the bizarre phrase that the people who are frightened of socialism keep using. It goes like this. Socialism has never worked anywhere. Well, all that tells us is you haven't looked very well and you haven't looked very far, or you're not talking about an analysis, you're talking propaganda. Maybe you ought to be honest about it. So here's the issue. The idea of socialism is about 200 years old. And during that time, which historically is not a long time, it has spread around the world. There's no country in which there aren't socialist organizations, socialist political parties, socialist movements of all kinds. Socialism is everywhere. And here's what we know. We know that if any idea could be Christianity, could be Marxism, could be Islam, could be whatever ideas became global, that usually it took them longer than it took socialism. But more important, where these ideas settled, they settled into different societies with different cultures and different histories, and they produced, here we go, different ideas of what Islam means or what Christianity means or what socialism means. And if you had the slightest grasp of history, you'd know that. So there isn't socialism in the singular. That's the first clue to an enemy of socialism who blithely talks as if it were one thing. It never was, and it isn't now. I am going to divide it up into four distinct concepts or realities of socialism, which any educated person would know and take into account, whether you like it or don't like it, at least you show you know something about it. Here's the first one. It's a very modest kind of socialism. It's the socialism that is called by that name in Scandinavia, in large parts of Western Europe, in parts of Brazil, in parts of Mexico, etc. It's all over the world, in Asia and Africa as well. Here's what it means, this first kind. You have enterprises, businesses, 
that are owned and operated by private individuals. They have employers and employees. In short, they are private capitalism. But what makes them socialist, what the people who are socialists there mean by the term, is that the government softens the rough, hard edges of capitalism. So, for example, it means that there's a minimum wage that's quite high, so you can't underpay workers. There's a public health system that takes care of everybody's medical needs from birth through death. There's subsidized family size, subsidized education, subsidized, you fill in the blank. It is sometimes called capitalism with a human face. That's what socialism means. That's, by the way, the socialism that Bernie Sanders endorses when he talks about Denmark. It's the socialism of a large part of the world. The part that usually wins the contest, where are people most satisfied? Where are people most happy? In Europe, it's overwhelmingly Scandinavia. Then there's a second kind of socialism. The first one simply has the government softening private capitalism. In the second kind of socialism, the government takes a much bigger role. It doesn't just regulate or control private capitalism. It takes over private capitalism. It converts it into capitalism. Why is it capitalism? Because it still has the employer-employee division inside every workplace. But it's state capitalism because the government displaces the private employer and substitutes government officials. And the best example of that socialism was the Soviet Union from 1917 till 1989. That's a different kind of socialism, fundamentally different because it, the state replaces the private capitalist owning and operating the enterprises. Okay? Now there's a third kind of socialism. It's not private capitalism with government control. That's the Scandinavian kind of socialism, sometimes called social democracy. And it's not the Soviet Union because the state doesn't come in displace all the private enterprises and make them into state enterprises. No, this third kind is a hybrid of the first two. In other words, it does have a sizable sector of state-owned and operated enterprises, but it also encourages private capitalists as well. I'm talking about the People's Republic of China. That's a different kind of socialism. By the way, the phrase the Chinese use for their society, socialism with Chinese characteristics. Exactly. And the chief characteristic is this hybrid. It's not a Scandinavian social democracy. It's not a Soviet-style state capitalism. It is an attempt to build a hybrid. And now, the fourth one. The fourth one is really quite different from the first three, because it displaces the whole idea of state versus private 
as a primary issue for socialists to be concerned about. The argument of this fourth kind of socialism is that the transformation beyond capitalism that has not been undertaken and not been achieved requires the transformation inside every enterprise. Not just a question of whether the government or private own and operate them. It's a question, have you got an employer-employee division inside every factory, office, or store? Or have you transformed, made a revolution inside the workplace, inside the factory, the office, the store? And what kind of transformation? The key word is democracy. To make every enterprise a democratic community, one person, one vote, where decisions are made democratically. What are we going to produce? How are we going to produce? Where are we going to produce? And what are we going to do with the revenue our products give us? To democratize the enterprise inside is the thrust and defining quality of this fourth kind of socialism, which I might mention is growing fast around the world and is likely going to play an ever bigger role in this century. Okay, so there are four different meanings of the word socialism. And if anyone is going to talk about it, what you're for, what you're against, or anything else, the first step is to recognize that these are four distinct definitions, four distinct meanings. And you either have to engage with them or you don't. But if you pretend they're not there, you're, you're either trying to hustle someone or you're ignorant. And neither of those things are worth a great deal of self-pride. Last point. What's the relationship between these different kinds of socialism and communism? Here the confusion gets downright crazy. Communism so far is not an achieved economic system. And all socialists that I know, know that and understand it and say so. So there's really no excuse for those who don't like socialism to pretend that it's a synonym for communism. The Soviet Union, USSR, stood for the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, not communists. They didn't refer to their system as communist. The Chinese don't do that either. The Chinese refer, as I said, to their country as socialism with Chinese characteristics. Now, there are political parties that take the label communist, and those exist in many countries. And if you ask them what they support, they will mostly tell you, like 99% of the time, they support socialism. Their goal is to advance socialism, either by a transition from capitalism to socialism or by a development of socialism to a future, better form of society, which they will refer to as communism. But notice, it's where we want to go, these socialists say. It's not where we are. Referring to the Soviets or the Chinese or anybody else as being in a communist 
economy or a communist society betrays a level of ignorance about what is really well known around the world that ought to make Americans who have some sense of being correct, of understanding, a little hesitant. You don't see that from the Hoover Institute at Stanford. You certainly don't see it from Mr. Trump, and the mayor of New York hasn't a clue. But it is important, especially as the questions and criticisms of capitalism mount, to be clear about what an alternative is and the different forms and understandings, past and present, that inform it. We've come to the end of today's show. I hope you have found these analyses interesting. Remember to get in touch with Charlie if you want to be a partner. And as always, I look forward to speaking with you again next week.